In this episode of Cross Defense, we're going to look at how Christians are called to live where the rubber meets the road, how the Church of England is having a hard time doing that with the question of what is a woman, how an ex-trans teen is boldly speaking against children transitioning, and we'll answer two questions from some listeners, one on women teaching Bible study and the other on gentle and quiet spirits and how we find Christ in the femininity in the Bible. Welcome back to another episode of Cross Defense from KFUO Radio. KFUO.org is our home online, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. Maybe you're on your phone and you can find us in your app store. Just go there and look for KFUO Radio and you can listen to all of our programming. we got wonderful shows coming your way to deliver Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host of Cross Defense, the Reverend Tyrell Bramwell, pastor of St. Mark Lutheran Church out here in Ferndale, California. Coming to you from KFUO's remote studio that uh, the church built here so that I could do this for you. We're calling it the Winged Lion Studio. It's pretty fun. It's We're having a good time. We're producing some other content there at the church's website as well, making best use of what we've invested in. So you can check that out if you're so inclined. When you jump over to our church's website to drop me a line, that's how you got to do that. If you want to reach out to me, you won't find me active on any of the social media platforms out there on the internet. You will only be able to reach me online via stmarksferndale.com. Go to the contact page there at stmarksferndale.com and drop me an email. If anything on today's show piques your interest, if uh, you're challenged theologically, if your imagination is excited, if your mind is equipped, if you're being built up by God's Word, if the cross comforts your soul, Christ crucified for the forgiveness of your sins, and how we understand that and express that in today's show, if that comforts you, go ahead, drop me a line over there at stmarksferndale.com, and you can check out all the other stuff from the Winged Lion Studios, and uh, we'll be happy to have you stop by. On today's show of Cross Defense, we're going to talk about living out our faith, not only in word and talk, but in deed and truth. We're going to talk about courage from creation, cowardly clergymen, and Christ in the hiddenness of a woman's heart. And all of this content is coming from listeners who went to stmarksferndale.com and dropped us a line using that contact form. So today's show is completely steered by listener questions and comments. So thank you all who have reached out. This is the third installment of Cross Defense after the relaunch. July, we are back after a long hiatus, a little over a year hiatus. We are now back, and we are producing great content for your eardrums. All right. Philip wrote after that first show, excited to hear that you're back on Cross Defense. Well, thanks, Philip. I'm excited to be to be back on Cross Defense. I appreciated the relevant practical content and would encourage you to keep it up. I appreciated how you were willing to engage comments by Pink and Stevie Nicks. I think most of us are so caught up in this world that while we know the Bible answers, we don't see how the rubber meets the road. And many of our pastors are willing to teach Bible truth, but shy away from the application. Also, more on technology and the church. I liked the Peeper quote and listened to your Neil Postman and the Virtual Church episode several times. Well, thank you, Philip, for listening to those back episodes and listening more than once, digesting that material, really uh, you know, discerning 
and listening and taking it in and thinking about it. I really appreciate that. And yeah, we're going to be talking more about the church, of course, because the church isn't going anywhere, Matthew 16, 18, right? We're always going to have the church until the Lord comes back. We're going to be in this situation. And so we're always going to be dealing with technologies, new technologies, as they press against us. Each generation is going to have to deal with it anew and figure out how to be faithful in the midst of the changing um, map, changing geography of our world. As we get into this first segment, we're going to talk about your um, address of me commenting on Pink and Stevie Nicks and how pastors sometimes shy away from application. So hold on, we'll get there in just a second. Thank you for that. See, one of the goals with the relaunch of Cross Defense is to help the church defend itself against the assaults from the world. To do that, we do have to get into application. We want to take our cruciform defense, our cross defense, into the fray where we can be the instruments that God has called us to be as Christians. This means that God is using us. He enjoys using us. He delights in using us, part of his creation, his called people, to rescue prisoners of war from the prince of this world, from imprisonment under Satan's rule. And so we want to engage and help you put on that armor to be able to defend yourself and be able to defend your faith, to be able to do that for the sake of your neighbor. You have Christ already, but your neighbor badly needs to be rescued. It's bad out here in the world. It is. And the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, is perfectly situated. We are poised perfectly to engage the enemy's assaults without equivocation. Without equivocation. We have the biblical truth, and we have a rock-solid tradition well accustomed to clearly articulating that truth to friend and foe alike. We have been in the fray since the beginning of the Reformation. We have been in the fray since Christ's ascension. And the apostles began teaching the church by the power of the Holy Spirit. It is untenable to think that we can be Christians in 2022 and not be out there living where the rubber meets the road, to use Philip's language. As a pastor, I do know that it's hard to bring the teachings of Scripture into real human lives, the lives of our hearers, the laity in the churches where we serve. I know that's hard. There is a great temptation for us who are teachers of God's Word to play it safe and to speak in generalities, convincing ourselves of the assumption that our people are hearing the general principles, they're hearing our words spoken from the pulpit or in Bible class or wherever, those general concepts, and that they're going to apply them how they know best in their lives. They're going to figure things out for themselves. And that's, that's the safe assumption that allows us to sit back and not be engaged with our people, to not be engaged with our people against the world against the powers and principalities of darkness. I recognize the temptation. But brother pastors, 
and all you laity out there who are supporting and encouraging your pastors, who want your pastors to not shy away from biblical truth and its application, we can't succumb to the generalities. Yes, sheep bite. You may not know that. Wolves bite, but so do sheep. And even other shepherds bite. The whole church is full of sinners, and it hurts to serve, and it hurts to be, uh, to be vulnerable and to be, expose yourself to the, the reactions, the retaliations when you speak truth. Pastors can get tired of the biting, and we can take a step back from the real life of our people and of the communities we are in, from that personal engagement so that we keep the biting to a minimum. Resist that temptation, brothers. Resist it. Lives depend on you being willing to take, well, to shift metaphors, a punch. Pastors today are not serving laity, well-climatized, by the instruction of Hebrews 13, 17. And what does that say? I got it in front of me here. Obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. We don't, we don't exist in a vacuum. The church isn't this perfect little paradise existing in a vacuum apart from our crazy sinful culture. The same people who live in the crazy sinful culture come into our crazy sinful churches, right? And so then the burden becomes on the pastor to teach. That's what pastors are for. But the laity have not been well acculturated to listening to that leadership, that authority given to the pastor for their benefit. I mean, this is not new to 2022. Obviously, it needed to be written down when Hebrews 13, 17 was written. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. As long as we speak pleasantries, all is well, right? As long as pastors are always just speaking these, these nice gospel words, all is well. Or when they're speaking generalities of the law about others, never really nailing us to the wall, but always just kind of speaking around us, all is well. But when we as pastors, must use God's word to nail someone to the wall, so to speak, to come to them in love and say, hey, that's a sin, brother. Say, hey, that's not the best thing for you to be doing as a Christian. You know better than that, right? Let me show you in God's word where it teaches us about this for your good. Let me help you. Let me serve you. That's what I'm here for. Let me reprove and correct. Well, then the biting begins, doesn't it? And usually it begins with a vengeance. Some people get so upset they just leave. There's so many churches out there. I'll just take my ball and go. So thank you, Philip. Thank you for your comments, your email. And thank you, every other blessed saint out there who understands that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, 2 Timothy 3.16. We want our pastors teaching. That's happening. Teaching specifics. 
We want our pastors reproving us, correcting us, training us. More and more pastors will be encouraged to speak the hard things that are beneficial to our souls when they know it will be received with a Christian spirit. So that's really kind of the problem, isn't it? Really, kind of? You get it. That's the problem. We become gun-shy. You ever heard that phrase? We're gun-shy. Pastors can become gun-shy. We get so tired of it. And think about your pastor. He, he trains for this. He wants to help people. He, he goes off to seminary to learn the tools he needs to be able to help people. He gets out in the world, and they don't want his help. He thinks the Christians that he's going to serve will be receptive of his instruction, his reproof, his teaching, his correction, all these uh, Timothy things, right? Second Timothy things. But they're not. Why? Because they're sinners. And we do get this training at a seminary. Don't, don't get me wrong. We're not going out blind. But it's not what the pastor is totally prepared for and expecting as a human being, thinking he's dealing with other like-minded, harmonious, united human beings. And so we can step back, whether it's Pink, Stevie Nicks, or our own family members and friends. We have been given God's truth. And this isn't just for pastors. This is for Christians, too, in your family. You, you need to apply this as the speakers of God's word to your neighbors. All the laity have this responsibility as well. We've been given God's truth, his word, not just for philosophizing. This isn't just theological pontification, discussion for discussion's sake, but for living out, not just in word or talk, but in deed and truth. 1 John 3, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. We ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. That's some powerful language. Verse 17, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Live it out. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. That gospel sandwich, 1 John 3, 16 to 20, to 20, yes. That gospel sandwich has an instructive bit of law that restrains us from turning the faith into an empty philosophic exercise where we talk about concepts derived from ancient wisdom but never really actually apply them or live them out. And that's not what God's word's for. God's word shapes us into people who live as Philip, you said in your email, where the rubber meets the road. That little bit of law, starting in verse 17 and including 18. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. There's something for us to do, to live not just in our heads intellectually, not just in our hearts emotionally, but to actually play it out, to let it play out, to live it out, to be vulnerable and to risk things. Friction, 
The concept of rubber meeting the road, that's friction. That's why the tires on your car don't last forever. They rub off. The rubber rubs off. (laughs) And that's why I love the gospel that comes after that. Jumping to verse 20, for whenever our heart condemns us, you're convicted because you haven't been living the law, been doing what you know you ought to be doing, living out the Christian faith, Well, hear this. Whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. You have been forgiven. Repent and receive that well. That's the word for you. Thank you. Thank you, Philip, for that email, for reaching out. If we don't want to live where the rubber meets the road, can we honestly say that we want to keep the commandments of our Lord? Remember this. Maybe you've never heard this, but We don't have to keep the commandments. We want to keep the commandments. We get to keep the commandments. The commandments are the revealed will of our Father, of God. We, as Christians, aren't under some pressure to have to keep them. The Lord fulfilled the commandments for us. We want to keep the commandments. So if we don't want to live where the rubber meets the road, can we actually honestly say we want to keep the commandments? Or are we now saying we want to want to keep the commandments? Are we once removed from the actual wanting of keeping the commandments? Remember, why do we why do we even want to keep the commandments? It's not for our sake. We're not earning our way to heaven. Jesus has already won our way to heaven. Why are we keeping the commandments? For our neighbor's sake. Because our neighbor needs our good works to see the will of our Father, to see Christ, to understand what God's will is so that we can understand we need a Savior. It's all part of God's economy there. We're going to take a break right there. When we come back, we're going to talk about what Charles Krauth has to say on this because all this reminds me of a quote from him, and we'll get to that in just a second. Don't go away. You're listening to Cross the Fence. word of Christ comes forth from his mouth as a sharp, two-edged sword. By that word, he puts our sin to death, and he raises us to new life in him. Join me, Pastor Timothy Apple, on Sharper Iron every weekday morning at 8 a.m. here on KFUO, as guest pastors from around the world lead us into the word of God to help us sharpen our faith in Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Welcome back to our second segment of Cross Defense for today. And as I said before the break, all of this conversation we've had about living where the rubber meets the road reminds me of what Charles Porterfield Krauth said in the Conservative Reformation and its theology, that giant tome of a work, great stuff. He says, shall we despond, draw back, and give our names to the reproach of generations to come because the burden of the hour seems to us heavy? So if living where the rubber meets the road, if if actually living out the Christian faith is too much of a burden, should we draw back from that? Should we be like, oh, no, I can't do that. And give our names over to the reproach of the generations to come, our neighbors yet to be alive, our, our neighbors, our children, our posterity, those who are to come? And he answers, 
in very Pauline fashion. He proposes the question, and then he answers, God, in his mercy, forbid. If all others are ready to yield to despondency and abandon the struggle, we, children of the Reformation, dare not. We dare not. Lutherans, with the truth, with the gospel, if all other people, even in Christendom, let's nail this down, if all other Christians want to draw back from the fight, from the fray, if they're too afraid to get their hands dirty, we, Lutherans, who've been through it before, who've led the charge before, we dare not, shall not draw back. Onward, Christian soldiers, we will march forward. And this is really the battle cry for our entire generation. Oh, this stuff fires me up. I love it. Not just regarding a theological willingness to live where the rubber meets the road, but also for the bigger, broader disposition of the church in an age so overwrought with evil maneuvers of wickedness. This is, this is the world we live in. The world is so, so wildly wicked right now. So overtly mocking God with everything going on. It is, in, it is insane. Krauth continues. The ongoing Reformation struggle has taught two lessons which must never be forgotten. One is that the true and the good must be secured at any price. Repeat that for emphasis' sake. The first lesson, the true and the good must be secured at any price. They are beyond all price, he says. We dare not compute their cost. Don't start to weigh the balance. Is it worth it? Yes, truth and goodness, Christ crucified for the forgiveness of your sins, is worth it. God's ordering of this world with his law and his gospel is worth it. Souls are in that balance. So don't begin to compute their cost. They are the soul of our being and the whole world as is, is as, excuse me, dust in the balance against them. No matter what is to be paid for them, truth and goodness, we must not hesitate to lay down their redemption price. The other grand lesson, second lesson, is that their price is never paid in vain. You can never pay this price in vain. What we give can never be lost unless we give too little. If you're worried about the sacrifice for truth and goodness and how that will play out for your neighbors yet to come and even for your neighbors right now. The only way your work, your sacrifice for truth and goodness, for scripture, the only way it will be in vain is if you give too little. You cannot give too much. If we maintain the pure word inflexibly at every cost. Let me say that again because we live in this a democratic republic, and, and in our world that surrounds the church, compromise is part of our system, rightly so. Part of the, the kingdom of the world, civil realm. If we maintain the word, the pure word, inflexibly at every cost, we don't have to compromise on things where God's word is clear about it. We just hold the ground, hold the line. Hey, this is what the word says. I'm not going to flinch right here, right now. This is what God's Word says. Hate me for it all you want. You don't like the things I'm saying? I'm sorry. Hate me for it, but this is what it says. I'm inflexible. I'm standing on God's Word. If we maintain the pure Word inflexibly at every cost, we shall conquer, Krauth says, through the Word. 
but to compromise on a single point is to lose all and to be lost. In the Missouri Synod, we can sometimes poke fun at ourselves. And after we do that for a while, it becomes uh, normative and shaping. Think of things like, well, card-carrying Lutheran. I'm not a card-carrying Lutheran. The idea that Lutherans think only Lutherans will be in heaven. and This, this is in other denominations too. But after a while, we start to believe that that's actually the reality, that the, the, that we need to be a little more flexible, that we need to be a little more compromising, you know, meet people where they're at, live in the world but not of the world. We start, we start using biblical language, biblical teaching to justify our flexibility and our compromise. No, no, stop. That's theological gymnastics, and we don't engage in that. We will hold the word inflexibly, uncompromisingly, let the world think we're haters, let the world mock us, let the world think we're backwards, misogynistic, toxic, whatever language, bigots, racists, homophobes, whatever. Those words don't hurt us. We have God's word. God's word. Okay, so let's uh, apply some of this, right? Shall we? As Philip mentioned, a little more application. I love that idea. Let's get into it. So we're going to go into some headlines right now. This first headline comes to us from Fox News. Both headlines today do, actually. So the first one is, Church of England refuses to define the word woman. This is dealing with our very first episode back. The Church of England said the definition of woman used to be self-evident. This is an article written by Michael Lee at Fox News on July 11th. The Church of England refused to offer up a definition of a woman, arguing that recent developments required additional care when attempting to define the word. Why do we need to be careful with definitions? Definitions aren't subjective. Definitions shouldn't change. Now, you can say that language is living, and yes, okay, after some time, things can change. The way we use the vocabulary can change, and so you can shift in the definition a little bit on certain things. But woman? And what, what's the additional care for? Well, this is a church, a churchman speaking, a clergyman for the Church of England. It's so we don't offend, right? This seems to be the great sin of all sins in our day. Offense. Offending people. Not being equitable, tolerant. This, my friends, is an anemic church. This is not apostolic Christianity. Let's juxtapose this sort of politically correct answer. Oh, we got to take additional care when defining what has always been known with Scripture. Do I get it? I, I understand gender dysphoria is a controversial topic. I get it. But that's precisely because reasonable people, which you would expect to find in the church, have relinquished well-established territory to the powers and principalities warring against the Lord. The very reason for these recent developments is because the church is not holding the line. Refusing to, find, to define woman is to surrender the field to the godless existentialists who mock God's dominion over both woman and words. 
A related topic that today is found under the same rainbow flag of the LGBTQ is going to be the scripture verse we use to juxtapose with today's Church of England and their response to the definition of a woman. That's the pool the Church of England is, is trying to wade through, the LGBTQ rainbow flag pool. 1 Corinthians 5, 1-13. Paul writes, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, of a kind that is not even tolerated among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant, Paul says. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. See how Paul deals with something that's controversial? Deals with something represented by the LGBTQ? Sexual immorality? When faced with real-life sin, what is Paul's reaction? Well, given recent developments with the social normalization of sexual immorality in our society, we need to take additional care not to... No! No! Remove the unrepentant sinner. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. That's true additional care. That's true love. You're doing this, this sin? You're lost in the ways of the world? Let me as church stop that. Nope. You ask me a question? Let me deal with that head on, not pandering, not mincing words, just be gone, error, let in truth. Let's get to it for the person's well-being. Look at what the Church of England, look what all the world is doing with this whole insanity of what is a woman. Can't believe the church, when asked point blank, hymns and haws, this is weakness. This is not the church that Christ founded. This is not the apostolic faith handed down throughout the generations. 1 Corinthians 5, 6, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Look for yourself, dear listener, at that answer. What is a woman? Well, we got to take additional care when answering because of recent development. No, sincerity and truth. Just get to it. Don't politicize with me. I'm not asking you to politic. I'm asking you to answer a very straightforward question. Verse 9, 1 Corinthians 5, verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of this world. But now I am writing you, not to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what, I, what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Want to take additional care when answering the simple question, what is a woman? 
answer as a Christian and hide behind God if you must. This is what God says. This is it. Let the attacks begin. This is, this is God's word. Answer as a Christian and hide behind God. I, I get that the wisdom of the world is all discombobulated over this whole transgender mess that they've created. But what's that to me? Right? What's that to us as the church? God will deal with the outsiders. Let's, let's just be honest with the insiders. And the question came to the bishop from a layman at their general synod. So it was an inside church question. I'm inside the church, you're inside the church, where we look to God's revealed word to answer our questions. Apparently, a layman asked senior bishop, right Reverend Robert Innes, during their general synod, what is the Church of England's definition of a woman? Simple, straightforward answer. Or, excuse me, question. And Ennis gave this answer. There is no official definition which reflects the fact that until fairly recently, definitions of this kind were thought to be self-evident as reflected in the marriage liturgy. What do you mean, right Reverend Bishop Ennis, that there is no official definition? If, for the Church of England? Okay, maybe. If you're not including the Bible as part of your official documentation, how much more official can you get than Genesis chapter 2? Answer me that. How much more official of a definition do you need? Genesis 2, starting at verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took out one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. I don't even have to summarize this teaching. Every single person can figure out the definition of a woman by what we're reading. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Jumping to 3.16, to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Genesis 3.20, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And let's not forget Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This comes even before we get the details of the creation, before we get woman language, mother language, childbearing language, before we get the feminine version of the human being. Official definition. There it is. There it is. The bishop argued that the definition of woman used to be self-evident, but no longer had a simple answer. <laughs> so the self-evidence that the bishop is speaking of, we, we might want to call this general revelation stuff, right? This is, this is part of the general revelation we speak of in the church when we're talking about the existence of God. We know there is a God because we can look at the world and we can perceive his design in creation. Romans 1. 19 to 20, for what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. 
So they are without excuse. So we can know things about God. We can know the invisible attributes of God, things that you can't just lift up a a skirt to understand, pardon my crassness, about God. But we can't do that with women. We used to be able to see an adult female and know that's a woman. The bishop is saying that's not the case anymore. This idea of general revelation, of the self-evident. What happened? Did God change something on us? Is there something new that we we need to understand? Do we need a new word from God to give us that definition? No. (laughs) No. What's happened is we've gotten too smart for our own good. We're bigger than our britches. We lost our way. This is what verses 18 and 21 to 25 speak to. Still in Romans, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, suppress the truth. Jumping to 21, the other side of what we've already read, for although they know God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, verse 24, therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Do you see what we're doing? We have denominations denying the the general revelation of God, the things that can be seen, and we have the church denying special revelation. Going to Genesis 1, 2, and 3 for the definition of woman is going to the special revelation of God, what he has revealed specifically in his word about his creation. See, God didn't leave it up to us to discern everything by just looking at generalities, looking at creation. Some things he literally did write down. There is an official definition of woman. It's right there in the book of Genesis. The comments sparked back to the article. Widespread criticism with uh, GB News personality Calvin Robinson arguing that offering a definition should not be difficult. <laughs> I agree. The definition of woman is not a complex moral problem, he said. It is a scientific and biblical truth. How can you trust someone who cannot speak the truth about such basic facts? Amen. How can the world, how can laity, how can anyone listen to a pastor who they're supposed to trust is speaking God's word, but they hear him not being sincere and truthful? Family, end-of-life issues, procreation, health, human suffering. These are the issues you or your loved ones have or will face in life. I'm Stephanie Jabauer. I invite you to join me and other Friends for Life in a community where the people of God share His Word and their experiences on life issues. Friends for Life, an LCMS partner podcast of KFUO with new episodes on the second and fourth Fridays. Find us on your favorite podcast platform and the KFUO app. 
We're back with more Cross Defense. I'm your host, the Reverend Tyrell Bramwell. If anything we talked about so far has piqued your interest, send me an email at stmarksferndale.com. That's S-T-M-A-R-K-S, ferndale.com. Go to the contact form there and drop me a line. Let's get into our final segment of today's show. My friends, you always need to be reading. Read, 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 and read the old guys. Read the stuff that's been out there for a while, the stuff that is pre the insanity we're in. Because then when you engage this insanity, you will be able to remember things, recall things. You'll have a little bit more of a roadmap of how to address the world we live in. Case in point is today's Equipping the Mind. This whole transgender insanity reminds me of something that I read in John Warwick Montgomery's Crisis in Lutheran Theology, this book, Volume 1. And in it, he's talking about the uh, verifiability principle, which he says still stands as the best available roadmap through the forest of truth claims. This is what we're dealing with, with this whole what is a woman question, truth claims. Basically, the truth claims are testable. You should know that. Truth claims are testable. The example he gives in this book is that there are angels living on the planet Uranus. That's the proposition. This might seem on the surface to be a meaningless proposition for no present test of verifiability exists by which the truth of or falsity of the claim can be determined. However, on the assumption that angels are visible creatures, if you want to allow that, a test can be conceived it would involve the use of spacecraft to make the journey to Uranus, whereby, through direct observation, the proposition could be tested as to be as to its truth value, excuse me. Thus, the proposition being hypothetically testable is meaningful because it's testable, it's meaningful. However, let it be noted well, and here's here's really where my mind went. Let it be noted well, if quote-unquote angels are defined in such a way that there is no conceivable way of determining their presence, even if one succeeds in arriving at their habitat, then proposition A, that angels are living on the planet Uranus, would indeed be meaningless, except as an emotive assertion such as, I like angels. What he's saying is, if we're constantly changing the definition, if there's no real firm definition of woman will never get to an answer of what a woman is. And that's exactly what the world has allowed and what the world wants because of its master, the liar, who speaks from his native language of lies, the devil. He has made it to where we cannot even define terms in our dialogue. If the definitions keep changing, then this entire thing is meaningless. The verifiability principle is useful here. Woke assertions about woman, about any of this stuff, once removed from the realm of testability, are meaningless. So while clergymen in the Church of England are breaking down trust with members of their church because they're afraid to say nothing more and nothing less than what is revealed in the natural revelation of God's creation, but also the special revelation of God in His Word, An ex-trans teenager is our next headline, and she is speaking out about the heartbreaking realities of our never-never-land culture of meaninglessness that ignores things like the verifiability principle. This article is also from Fox News, 
written by Tyler O'Neill, published on July 10th, California ex-trans teen backs Florida ban on Medicaid funds for transgender medical interventions. Chloe Cole said she may not be able to have children and is at higher risk for cancer because of transgender medical interventions. A California teen girl who once identified as transgender and took hormones and underwent surgery to affirm such an identity spoke out in favor of a Florida rule blocking Medicaid funds from paying for medical interventions for gender dysphoria. Here's her quote. Listen to this, my Christian friends. Listen carefully. I really didn't understand, Chloe says, all of the ramifications of any of the medical decisions that I was making. Chloe Cole, who is now currently at the time of this recording, 17, said at a public hearing Friday, she's still a minor. She said she was medically transitioned from ages 13 to 16, taking so-called puberty-blocking drugs and testosterone and undergoing surgery to remove her breasts at age 15. Quote, I was unknowingly physically cutting off my true self from my body, irreversibly and painfully. I don't know if I'll be able to fully carry a child, and I might be at increased risk for certain cancers, mainly cervical cancer. And because I do not have my breasts, I am not able to breastfeed whatever future children I have. That realization actually was one of the biggest things that led to me realizing that this was not the path that I should have taken, Cole added. No child should have to experience what I have, she concluded. (laughs) When asked what she would say to the public, Cole said, do not transition your kids. If you are considering transitioning, please wait until you are a fully developed adult, is what Cole said. Transitioning can damage your body and your mind in ways that we may not fully understand. So we have this 17-year-old ex-trans teenage girl out here in my state, California, who is bolder than the right Reverend Bishop Innes. May the world hear what damage we are doing to women. Jane has a question from our July 3rd episode as well. What would you think of having a woman do most of the teaching during your, quote, pastor's Bible study? A woman teaching... During the pastor's Bible study? No. 1 Timothy 2 deals with this specifically, starting at verse 5. Let me read it for you. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. This is St. Paul writing. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire this, that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also, the women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man? There's your answer, Jane. Rather, she is to remain quiet, 
For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. That's 1 Timothy 2, 5-15 to for those keeping record. Paul goes on to outline the qualifications for overseers and deacons as you read on. I won't do that today in the show for sake of time where he mentions that these offices are held by men. And take a look at 1 Timothy 3, 1 to 13 for all of that. Thanks for the question, Jane. I really hope that helps. Molly also sent an email regarding that first woman and the divine image show. I was wondering, she writes, if you had any thoughts or any recommendations for other resources on 1 Peter 3, 1 to 7. This passage has always puzzled me somewhat. And to be perfectly honest, I find it the most personally convicting passage about femininity in the Bible, namely the gentle and quiet spirit bit. Do you have any thoughts on this passage or any recommendations for a good commentary on it? Thank you very much, and thank you for your work with KFUO. Blessings, Molly. Thank you, Molly, for your question. I do have some thoughts on it. You'll notice that 1 Peter 3, 1-7 parallels what we just were reading from uh, 1 Timothy. We, we just talked about it, so you'll notice those parallels. Uh, we, so here we have both the apostles Peter and Paul giving instructions to women, both of them, very similar. This is 1 Peter 3, 1-7, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. So if a wife is married to an unbelieving husband, she can save her husband not even with, without even speaking a word, just by her conduct when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Verse 2. Verse 3. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but, verse 4, let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. That's what you referenced, Molly, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Sarah went through some very frightening things based on the decisions her husband made. You might think about how she was given to marry the Pharaoh, other things like that. Uh, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Molly, you're looking for my thoughts. Here they are, especially on verse 4, the quiet and gentle bit you mentioned. Let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Notice the word hidden, kryptos in the Greek. What a wonderful connection we have here with this hiddenness, a connection to Christ, who didn't come in glory, adorned with external power from on high, the power he he possessed as God. He didn't come with that external adornment, but with the hidden humility. His disciples were looking for the external power. They were looking for an earthly conqueror, right? They wanted him to, to ride in on a white steed and knight in shining armor style and conquer Jerusalem, and drive out the Roman occupation. Now, Lord, is it now the time that you're going to reestablish Israel? You're going to 
drive out these heathen horde now? And he didn't come with that kind of glory. He wasn't that kind of conqueror. He was conquering the whole world with his humility. He came, his triumphal entry that we celebrate every year, he rode into Jerusalem lowly on a donkey, a borrowed donkey. Philippians 2, 6-11 helps us here. Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death and even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The first Peter 3 pericope that you bring up specifically is about the relationship between husbands and wives. And we get from Scripture that this relationship between husband and wife, it's a picture of Christ and his church, right? The husband outwardly represents Christ in relationship to his bride. The church is the bride. The wife is represented, representing the church. The wife also has a Christ-like vocation because the church becomes the body of Christ. And we find here in this 1 Peter 3 pericope, this Christ-likeness is found in the hiddenness, the cryptos of the wife's heart. We look to Christ's humility on the cross, the hiddenness of his divine power there on the cross. You could say we are looking to where He is most profoundly hidden, where you would least expect to find the God of this universe, a man hanging dead on a stick. For the wife, gentleness and that quiet spirit are an imperishable beauty like Christ's humility on the cross. His death is victory over death and the devil That's where we find the glory of God hidden in the humility of God, not in some outward external glory. His humility is why he's exalted. That's woman in relation to her man. Just as Christ was not a man of majesty or beauty that we should desire him, Isaiah 53, 2 and 3, it's not about externals, but about the cryptos, the hidden truth. 1 Corinthians 1.18 for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Another connection for the woman. Think about this as it relates to you as wife. The biblical femininity that most convicts you, Molly, is very much an example of how God operates. He has revealed himself in Christ, to which men are called to be representations of in an outward, obvious way in the vocation of husband. But God is hidden also in the vocation of wife, as women are called to serve their closest neighbors, their husbands, as a representation of the hiddenness of God. These are my thoughts anyway. I hope they are of some help to you. Thank you so much, Molly, for asking your question and even being vulnerable there with letting me know, letting us know here at Cross Defense the part that was personally most convicting for you as you think about femininity in the Bible. I really hope that this encourages you, strengthens you, builds you up 
in your faith as you see how you too, not just the man, but the woman, has a a, uh, Christ-likeness to her in her relationship to her neighbors. Cross Defense can be listened on any of your favorite podcast apps. You can find it wherever you're listening to Cross Defense. I would ask you to leave a positive review if this did challenge you theologically, if your imaginations were excited by God's word, if you were equipped in the mind by God's word, if the comfort of the cross impacted your soul and brought you a little solace, a little peace of mind, go ahead and leave a review. Let the world know just how much this show is of service to you. Thank you so much for doing that. And um, we will see you next week. Until then, make sure you know and you remember, Christ is your defense. The cross is your defense. Cross Defense is a production of KFUO Radio. Find past episodes and support Cross Defense at KFUO.org. Views and opinions expressed on Worldwide KFUO may not represent the official position of the management or ownership of KFUO, the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. If you'd like to comment on programs or topics heard on Worldwide KFUO, write us at KFUO, 1333 South Kirkwood Road, St. Louis, Missouri, 63122. You can also leave a question or comment on our comment line at 314-996-1542.